What are the secrets of those extraordinary individuals that have achieved extraordinary success? Listen to their stories, discover their knowledge bursts, make those connections. Get ready. It's time to start moving forward. Hey, John Lim here. We've got a really fun episode today. Michael Denon, he's an author, speaker, and professor of physics and astronomy at UC Irvine, where he serves as vice provost for teaching and learning. He has been featured on several TV shows, including Ancient Aliens on the History Channel and several documentaries, including Star Wars Tech. I mean, how cool is that? How are you today, Michael? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no, thank you so much. And special shout out to Ryan Foland. He's the one who connected both of us. Ryan's a great guy. Yes. And uh, Michael, I am just, I'm just completely floored by all that you do and that uh, all the cool stuff that you have going on. So I've got to ask, you know, I share a little bit about yourself and and fill in a little bit of the background information. Sure. So I, I would say, you know, a lot of my recent life has been a series of taking advantage of opportunities I never expected. So as you mentioned, my you know main position at UCI for the last 20 years has been a professor of physics and astronomy. Um, and I, I was followed one of those classic trajectories. Four years to Princeton University as an undergraduate, got my degree in physics, went straight to graduate school, um, UC Santa Barbara, got my PhD there. Um, little bit of a twist. I went to and did a postdoc at UCLA, actually in a chemistry department, oh, wow. which, um, but I was still doing physics. There's an area of physical chemistry, which is right on the border between physics and chemistry. So I did that and then got hired at UCI as a professor um, and, you know, thought I was on a normal professor trajectory. My, my dad's a math professor. My mom's a high school math teacher. So education and science is in my background. But a number of years ago, I had some students approach me and said, hey, can you come do a science of Superman thing in the dorm? And I did. And I <laughs> love it. And, and, you know, it was just out of the blue. But they needed to do something that was both academic and social. You sure. know, it was the kind of RAs had to do an event. And it was just a weird trajectory that led to me doing a freshman seminar, which is a one unit course. Um, there was a very slow news day, so the Orange County Register did a story on the fact that I had a course on Science of Superheroes, which made it to the LA Times, which then, when they were looking for people to do the Science of Superman, which um, Prometheus Productions did, they saw that, they called me, and that started my TV career, which was a big risk. I, I wasn't sure what it would be like to be interviewed um, for TV, but I did that, and, and that's gone shockingly well. Um, and that led me into what I describe as unusual science outreach. So I do science of superhero stuff. I do, as you mentioned, I was on ancient aliens. So I've even been to UFO congresses wow. and conferences and talked about science. And I also have thought and, and talked a lot about science and religion. So I finally wrote a book, which physicists don't do. We don't write books. That's too much work. <laughs> um, so I wrote a book on, on science and religion. Um, and then to make things even worse, at the end, in the last two or three years, I decided um, to go into administration at the university. So I'm now a vice provost for teaching and learning and dean of our division of undergraduate education. And the teaching and learning piece is particularly exciting to me um, because it's a new position. It was just created two years ago. Oh, that's great. Recognizing the importance of teaching in a research university. But as I like to say to people, I spent 18 years complaining about how teaching works. So I guess that's why they put me in charge of it. 
<laughs> Michael, I got to ask you, I mean, that is such a cool story. I mean, you're, you had students coming up to you asking you to teach them a little bit about the science of superheroes. I mean, what was your reaction to that when you first heard that? Well, my first reaction was, what the heck am I going to do? Um, <laughs> but I realized um, very quickly that the, the, the great power of using superheroes is that everyone's familiar with it. Sure. And it makes science kind of safe and fun. Yeah. Um, and they actually wanted me to talk about the very first Christopher Reeve superhero movie, um, yes. Superman movie, which had a couple of easy things to do. Um, there's, of course, the end where he flies backwards and spins the earth backwards. Yes. Um, which has various problems with it, uh, <laughs> but allowed me to do like a calculation and talk about it in a way that people actually cared. Um, there's other fun things you can do. There's a scene where he saves Lois Lane as she's falling down, and you, you realize that the speed he must have been going when he catches her is worse than if she just hit the ground. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's uh, Neither is very good, but she's kind of dead either way, right, but she's right. more dead when Superman catches her. <laughs> Um, it's so cool, though. I mean, it, it must have been uh, just to be able to blend that. Now, here's my question for you. I mean, you know, what was the reaction of your colleagues when they found out that you were blending, you know, some pop culture superhero stuff into the classroom? I mean, were they surprised? Were they supportive? Was there any resistance to it? You know, for the most part, people were very supportive, yeah. um, which really pleased me. At first, what's fascinating, and, and this happened many times over, um, we actually got to do a MOOC. These are massive open online courses. They're free courses mm -hmm. in various platforms. We did one on The Walking Dead. Yes, I was about to ask uh, because I'm a and, huge Walking Dead yeah. fan. And when you do things like that, what I learned is there is a small subset of people. The way I describe it is if the title for a course is too interesting, they figure the course must be fluff. <laughs> but if the title is sufficiently boring, they figure it must be extremely rigorous. And I don't know when rigor and boring became equated. <laughs> I, I, I don't understand that yeah. conceptually, right? Um, you know, for me, part of the fun is the actual rigor, right? I mm -hmm. mean, working hard is fun, which I know is a little weird, but you, you get something really meaningful out of it at the other end. And students know that. It's, you know, I think students sometimes get a bad rap for looking for easy courses, now, it's nice to occasionally take a course that's not quite as hard as others to get that little rest or break. Um, and, and I think every university has those, and that's very appropriate. But they're not super easy. It's like easy by comparison to the really, really hard, right? It's still quite rigorous and, and good. So it's, it's balance as with everything is important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but, but Michael, I got to ask you, I mean, starting out yeah. in your career, did you ever imagine that you would be teaching courses that would incorporate things like Superman, Spider-Man, Star Wars, and of course, you know, the world of zombies with The Walking Dead? No, I, I, I never imagined that. I never imagined I could possibly be on TV. I mean, it's one of the things I've learned, and it's really helped when I meet with students. We know the world is changing, that people don't have just one fixed career. Yeah. So having had late in my career some new and exciting opportunities that are completely different from what I trained for originally yeah. um, has really helped me work with our students and kind of help better prepare them for what they might be experiencing. Yeah, no, I absolutely love it. And Michael, talk a little bit about how your career changed or how things changed for you when you started appearing on TV, when you started getting requests for these appearances and, and getting on these different shows. Well, I think one of the biggest things was it really 
forced me to think about how we do science mm -hmm. outreach to the public and then how we teach science for non-scientists at the university. We tend to have this view. It's, 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 it's interesting. Everybody agrees that someone who's graduated from the university should be able to write. Um, and that writing at the university level is different than writing at the high school level. Mm -hmm. um, we also understand that what people need to write is somewhat field and context dependent, right? It's not writing a poetry is different than writing fiction is different than writing a journalistic type article for the news is different than writing marketing ad copy and so on. So there's these different types of writing and, and the university sort of builds around that in its writing. But with science, we, we have this gut feeling that the people should be science literate, mm -hmm. but I don't think we ta have taken a lot of time to think about what that means. So most of those courses are take a regular science course and quote, water it down, mm -hmm. make the math easy. Math is what people don't like, so let's ignore that. And what I found by, by thinking about talking about superheroes is you really want people to be able to read something in the news or the media, whether it's about medicine, whether it's about the climate, whether it's about um, just new technologies coming out and have some ability to judge the scientific relevance of what they're reading. Yeah. And that's very different than a regular science course. And so superheroes turn out to be a nice place to practice evaluating of something scientific. Yeah. So it really caused me to rethink my teaching and, and the course I do now um, on superheroes is very much a, a science for non-science majors, but it really goes deep into how you evaluate science. Oh, that's interesting. So it sounds like, I mean, and what did you notice in terms of your students? I mean, how they interacted with the material as soon as they are see you know they're using case studies where they're they're seeing examples of things that are already a part of their life the, the the pop culture the superheroes i mean what did you see change in the way the students uh interacted or engaged with the science well one thing first of all they realized it was actually kind of tricky to talk about it right because their high school science experience had either been memorizing definitions or doing simple <laughs> yes. word problems right and now you're challenging them to write critically about, say, a scene in a movie. But then they also realized, I think, that these very abstract concepts when, for anyone who's taken any basic physics, right, it's always blocks on inclined planes and pulleys and ropes, and you, you do these problems and you have no idea why you're doing them or where they apply. And now someone asks you, um, watch this scene where Iron Man is flying through New York City fighting aliens. Is it depicting flight accurately? Explain. And, and, and use the laws of physics, you know, they're like, first of all, the fact that they can even do that, I think, blows their mind. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It makes them realize science is something they can think about. Right. It's not kind of the old standard categories they had before. And it really gets them into this new space. And, and most of them get very excited about it. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And it sounds like, I mean, it, it's really enriched that classroom experience between you and, and your students and the material. And talk a little bit about, so once you started getting into television, you mentioned that you, I mean, this led you to write your first book. And uh, talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting route. So what, what basically happened, and, and again, this is, I think, part of what I try and tell the students is, You've just got to be persistent and, and try all your options. So I'd been on TV and I'd given a couple talks and I realized 
why not become a speaker and and actually charge for giving talks like every but normal person in the world does and make a little money, you know, not not too much. Um, I like to describe it as discovering an appropriate level of greed in my life. <laughs> um, but but you know, it's not a common space for academics to work in. So my question to myself was, well, how do I get out there and give talks? And it was a little harder than I, I first realized, but part of it was I just kept asking anyone I would think of. And ironically, I asked the woman who owns the dance studio where my, my kid takes dance lessons. Oh. And I said, look, you must know agents. I know they're probably dance agents. I don't dance, but maybe they know agents for speakers, right? Because maybe agents know agents. Um, this is what I would like to do. Can you get me in touch with anyone? And ironically, she got me in touch with a person who runs a ghostwriting company for CEOs. Mm-hmm. And he was very, very gracious and agreed to meet with me for an hour. And it was an eye-opening conversation as an academic because he got right to the heart of, okay, if you want to talk and you want to be a speaker, you need a book. And you're very, very busy as an academic. You're just as busy as the CEOs. The reason CEOs use ghostwriters is because it's still their book, but it actually goes faster. Here's how you do it. Wait, 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 it so wait a me. minute. So you are interested in becoming a speaker. You go to your kid's dance teacher. You get exactly. connected to someone. And then he, all of a sudden you're hearing about, well, you got to write a book. What is your reaction to that? I mean, because it's like you're learning these different <laughs> steps here. And I, I love the way you're sharing that. Yeah. Well, at first, my, my first reaction was, okay, well, that's kind of insane. But he was so good. He's like, well, what are you passionate about? And I told him, superheroes and and science and religion and superheroes and science so within like five minutes he had outlined what a book should be that i would write and and how it's not like any other book on the market and i was like great and he was very honest he goes you can't afford me i work for ceos (laughs) um but gave me some hints and i found a very very nice ghostwriter that i could work with and it really is true it you read it and it's still your book, which is yeah. what I like well, about actually, it. Actually, Michael, for our listeners who may not be familiar with that term, I mean, yeah. can you explain what a ghostwriter is and what, what is sure. the process of writing a book with a ghostwriter? So what it basically is, I, I, I would describe it as an even better voice-to-text translator than your computer. <laughs> um, and what the guy explained to me, which works very well, he goes, you have a one-hour interview with this person because about one hour is a chapter in a book. They then write the chapter for you. They draft it. You edit it heavily so it matches your style and what you want to say. And the trick is they get you that first chapter and you get them the edits before the next interview. Ah. And then you interview and you iterate on this. And by the third or fourth chapter, they're really writing in the style you would be writing in. Yeah. And it really is like and it's a little bit also like having a research assistant because they also do help a little bit um, if you hire the right person with, okay, where are you fitting in the space of the world out there? Right. Um, so they can provide some references and hints for you. And and that's that was the process. It also, for me, because I was writing on science, it, it gave a person, they were not a science expert. They were interested in science. They had some background, but not super strong. It gave a first test audience for my ideas, oh, yeah. right? Because if it made sense to them, I was more likely to make sense to, to the your general reader. audience. Yeah, yeah. And um, how, all in all, how long did it take? What was the, the time frame for the process of uh, so it took it took probably about six months total. Mm. So very fast. Now, it helped for a number of the topics I had already given public lectures on, on them. So I had the ideas fairly well worked out. We did almost an interview a week, and it was about 10 chapters, but the later chapters took 
a couple of weeks of edits just because the material was new enough for me. He right. sent me the stuff. The style would be fine, but I'd read him like, no, that's not really what I want to say. And I'd have to edit. It was it was a great process. And it, it just I think it highlights for people. There's no harm in taking these chances. Like, Absolutely. why ask your dance teacher what to do? Right. But <laughs> worst she could have said was, I have no clue, Michael. And, and I, I love, you it. know, used two minutes of her time. Yeah. Um, and but it also, I think shows that there's really generous people out there. I mean, for this man to meet with me for an hour because he was good friends with my daughter's dance teacher, I mean, that was valuable time on his part, but it was some of the most valuable advice I've gotten. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. No, and, and and I love how one door opened another. I mean, you were you were initially going out to look for you know how to open the door for speaking gigs, and then all of a sudden you're you're writing your first book, which I think is amazing. So, Michael, what what happened afterwards? What happened after the the writing was done? And can you talk a little bit about the next steps with the with the book? Yeah. So so this was. Okay, this is where I, I have to admit it's a little embarrassing how super lucky I got <laughs> because I was going to self-publish the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the gentleman's company, one of the other things they do is they do help people with that self-publishing stage. And that's more at the affordable level. So I was going to work with his company and do that. And I was almost through the entire process. And the last step you do is you send your book to people who you know and you ask them for those cool quotes that show up on the cover. Right. And I learned you even send some sample quotes that they may want to pick. <laughs> <laughs> that I did not know. That's yes, uh, to help them, right? right Just right. you know. Um, and one of my friends I sent it to. He he's um, a, a, Catholic, a Franciscan priest. He's written a ton of books, and this was on science and religion, so it was very appropriate. And he he actually read the book, and he called me and he said, "Michael, do not self-publish. This book is too good. Wow. It needs to be published by a real publisher. And this company is looking for a book from me, and I don't have one now." I'm going to connect you directly with their editors. Oh, that's great. Um, and so, again, that connection, um, I don't I, – I, who knows? They, they might have read it and they might have accepted it through just their normal submission process. But it's, with everything in life, there are so many people submitting to anything. Sure. Um, to have this connection, I think, really, really helped. Um, and so they picked it up and they published it. It's from Franciscan Media. I, I did learn – I've been warned that publishers like to change the titles of books. So – my original title was God is the Ultimate Superhero mm-hmm. to try and tie all of the stuff together. Turned out the book I actually wrote had very little to do with that title, but I still thought it was a cool title, so I was yeah. leaving it. <laughs> the publishers, of course, they really don't like to publish books where the titles don't connect to them. Right. <laughs> so the new title ended up being Divine Science, Finding Reason at the Heart of Faith, oh, which interesting. really does match the book a little bit better. And leaves open the possibility of still writing the book, God. Yeah, I was about to say, are you you saving the title for your second book? Yeah, so I'll save that for the second book. (laughs) Uh, That's a Um, great story. Well, Michael, are you ready for the Knowledge Burst session? I I am. All right. Well, Michael, as someone who has been in media and has written his book, and considering that uh, you also teach and incorporate so much pop culture, I'm excited to ask you, so do you have an influential media source that you can point to? And and it could be anything. It could be a, a favorite movie, a book, a song, or I add to this, a favorite cultural experience, one that inspired you to move forward. You know, I, I have to say, this was a really tough one to think about, but I'm actually going to go with the musical version of Les Miserables. Ah, okay. I know it sounds a little archaic, but That's I just, great I, I find the stories of the people in there so inspiring. And what I really like about it is, the, the emphasis on the choices we make in yeah. our life and that we do have choices 
and we have to decide who we want to be. Yeah, no, that's a great, great pick. Michael, recommend and share if you have one. Do you have a favorite app, website, or productivity practice, one that has been proven to be a real game changer for you? You know, this is embarrassing because I I really hate to highlight this, but it turns out Microsoft Notebook has, when I became a vice provost, to just keep track and organize of all the notes from the 18 zillion meetings I'm in. I I tried to use real old-fashioned notebooks. I've tried other things. But being online and all in one place and showing up on any device I'm on, you know, there's other products like that as well. But a product that's online and you can get to from anywhere and just has all your notes in one place has turned out to be a lifesaver for me. Yeah, that's a great one. Hey, Moving Forward listeners, you can find links to many of the books and resources mentioned by today's guest, along with offers to try out Audible and Amazon Prime. These are affiliate links for which I receive a small commission, which helps the podcast and is greatly appreciated. You can find these on the write-up for today's episode at bemovingforward.com. Well, Michael, you ready to do a little time travel? Sure. All right. So I'm excited to ask you this. So we're going to go back in time. And what I'd like you to do is pick a moment before you had to make a big decision, whether it was deciding that you were going to pursue speaking uh, or write your book, you know, just something that uh, was was on the verge of a change for you, some sort of decision that would lead to a change in your life. Is there a piece of advice that you would give yourself that would have helped you during those times? Um, yeah, I think one of the, at, at any point of those times, I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I'd give myself is to not, I mean, I, I come from a, a, you know, being a really good student and being wrong was always the worst thing you could do. Um, and, and really let go of that fear of making mistakes and embrace taking ownership for if something doesn't go right, your contributions or what you could have done better in that situation. Um, one, I think people really, really appreciate it when other people are very clear about what they could have done differently, but it also really lowers your stress. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and also it makes you realize that though these decisions are often big ones and can often be very life changing, there's very little in life that's, that's permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, if it does turn out to not be working well, you can do something else. Yeah. Definitely. definitely. Um, and I think that would help me be a little more relaxed in those moments as I go to make those changes. Well, and Michael, here's the flip side, though. How would past Michael respond to that advice? It depends how far past. <laughs> <laughs> well, pick a, um, let's pick a period. Let's say, uh, let's say early in your career. Yeah. I think by the time I became a professor, I was getting better at that. Yeah. Um, a really transformative moment in my life was – it was two things in sort of near the end of graduate school and as I started being a professor. Um, one is near the end of grad school, I became really aware. So my thesis advisor um, was a member of the National Academy of Sciences, one of the highest honors you can get, um, won many prizes. He had worked for the longest time at um, AT&T Bell Labs when it existed, one of the most prestigious jobs mm. in physics. Very, very famous scientist. And what I finally realized about him was he was – not afraid of being wrong or embarrassed by it. So he'd be at a talk or at a presentation and he'd ask a question or he'd challenge a person. And when, if they came back and he turned out to be wrong, he would be 
excited that he learned something new, not upset that he was wrong. Uh, yeah. Um, cool. And just seeing that, it took a, a while to integrate that, but it set a goal for me. Yeah. It said, I want to be as comfortable as that. Um, and, and then going to take my first job as a professor, my, my dad actually said to me, now, as you, you know, growing up, your, your grandma always said, good, better, best, never let it rest till the good is better and the better best. Because <laughs> now that you're going to be a professor, I'll tell you the reality know when good is good enough and just don't move on. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's great. And I love how you framed it as a goal that you saw someone that yeah. you admire who, who would achieve that. And it's not something that you can necessarily just turn on a switch, but it, it's, it's a goal that you can work towards. And I think that's a really, really good way of framing yeah. it. So No, it definitely is. Yeah, great share, Michael. Well, Michael, how can our listeners connect with you and learn about all of the great work that you're doing? So there's one is following me on Twitter. It helps. Um, that's at Denon Michael. Apparently, there's another Michael Denon in the world, and they got that first. So okay, I well, we'll make sure we have the right one on the right of. So. Right, so that's at Denon Michael. <laughs> I also do have a, a Facebook page that I use a little bit for the writing and other things. I don't post there quite as much as Twitter, but that's Prof Denon Michael. Awesome. And then, if you you, it's easiest to just Google it. But at UCI now as Vice Provost for Teaching and Learning. All of our pages um, use the acronym OVPTL for Office of Vice Provost of Teaching and Learning. And we've got, you know, the website. We've got the Facebook page. We do have a YouTube channel that we finally got over 100 subscribers. So we're going to actually correct it to a a normal name. If you don't have 100 subscribers, you get those random letters. Uh, Um, So I don't have a good link for that yet. But again, if you Google OVPTL and UCI, you will find all of those. And we'll have all Um, of those linked in the write-up for Moving Forward listeners. Well, Michael, I would love to have you close out the show. So using about maybe four to five words, what parting wisdom would you like to pass on to Moving Forward listeners? I think the phrase I like is embrace mistakes and learn. I love it. Embrace mistakes and learn. Michael, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today to share that incredible story with our listeners and to inspire them to move forward. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. And one more time, Moving Forward listeners, I'm going to encourage you, head on over to BeMovingForward.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, at BeMovingForward. And join us next Tuesday for another extraordinary guest. Have a great week. And remember, always be moving forward. Now it's time for you to move forward and unlock the extraordinary in you. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and Bali Solutions, LLC. All rights reserved.